Viktor Frankl, a Jewish psychotherapist, wrote a book after the Second World War. He wrote the book called Man's Search for Meaning. Frankl was, intent, was interned, of course, in Nazi concentration camps, who recalls the horrors and the brutality of life in the camps. According to Frankl, the way a prisoner imagined the future affected one's longevity. He noted the enduring quest for meaning that kept so many people alive in these most desperate of circumstances. He said, our generation is realistic, for we have come to know man as he really is. After all, man is the being who invented the gas chambers at Auschwitz. Despite this, Frankel observed that people seek habitually for meaning and significance, even in our darkest moments. We're all searching for meaning and significance. We want to know why we matter, what we're here for, and why we count. Now, our story, a parable of Jesus, is well known by all of us, I'm sure. And there are three characters in this drama. There's the younger brother who takes his inheritance and squanders it. There's the older brother who stays at home working for his father. And, of course, there's the father himself who has to deal with his two boys. And he deals with them with remarkable tenderness and generosity. So let's look at these three characters in turn. Looking at the younger brother first, notice what he says to his father in verse 2. He says, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. Now, even in our culture, in our world today, this is an inappropriate request. And in Jesus' time, this was an astounding request for a, a son to ask a father. The youngest son wasn't the primary inheritor of his father's estate. Jewish custom dictated that he, he stood to receive only half as much as the older brother. So he would receive a third of the estate. And, ni and neither son would normally inherit anything until after their father's death. But the younger brother can't wait for that day to arrive. He wants what's coming to him and he wants it now. You can just imagine the pain those words would have caused the father to hear. His son is effectively saying to his father, I want your stuff more than I want you. And in verse 12, we see the father's response. We're told that he divided his property between them. Now, his property in the original Greek literally means his life. This isn't some clinical business transaction. The younger son who gathers the products of his father's lifetime of labour views them nothing more than commodities to enrich himself with. As far as he's concerned, there's nothing in the father's property or in his father's life that makes them sacred to his memory. In fact, he doesn't seem focused on the father at all. He's focused only on himself. And in verse 13, it explains that the younger son gathers all that he has, and within a few days, he's out of there, visiting a far country. And this doesn't surprise us, does it? He wasn't content to live in his big brother's shadow or in the embrace of his father's care any longer. So he sets, to, sets out to find himself, for himself. He seeks his significance 
in a voyage of self-discovery and self-expression. But as verse 13 continues, we find that he squanders his inheritance on reckless living. And the Greek vocabulary that's used is really very interesting. The word for squander suggests that he was throwing something in the wind. Imagine liquidating all of your assets, getting a big pile of cash, climbing up to a high room and throwing all the money out the window for the wind to blow away. That's what the younger son did with his small fortune. I've known people, of course, you may know people who have done this, on a casino table. And Luke describes that this particular wind that blew the younger son's inheritance away, he describes it as the wind of reckless living. And the word he uses this time has moral overtones. In fact, when the older brother offers a word of a commentary to his father later in the story about this younger son, he says that this younger son has devoured the father's property with prostitutes. So the younger son doesn't simply leave home to forge his own path. He leaves home really to go off the deep end, and that's what he does. Now, the devouring nature of pleasure is one approach in finding significance for ourselves. The, other, the younger brother wants it to go it alone, if you like. He wants to be a self-made man, to stand on his own two feet, to find himself. So he asks his father, almost literally, to tear his life into two for him as Andy leaves. And then he begins to spend in order to find himself in his pleasures. But these pleasures, as his big brother points out, will only devour him. And then when famine strikes, he hits rock bottom. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus paints a very effective, shocking portrait of abject depression and desperation. The younger son then went and then hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. A Jewish man feeding pigs. Can you imagine how low this was? It's bad enough for anyone. No matter how sanitised pig farms are today, there's no escaping the smell. But more than that, pigs were forbidden for Jews to eat and touch. If you ever study intertestamental history between the Old and the New Testament, you'll learn that the oppression and the persecution that the Jews suffered under the Greeks were heightened when they were forced to eat pork. Many suffered martyrdom rather than do this. And so this younger brother had reached a very, very low point in his life. And Jesus tells us just how low and hungry and desperate this younger son has become, so much so that he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. But no one gave him anything. So here's a man who set out to find significance, his significance, to find his purpose, to find his identity by self-discovery and self-expression. He's been given everything and he's squandered it. And when he hits rock, rock bottom and has nothing, no one will give him anything. In his search for significance, he ends up in the muck of a pigsty, which is a very embodiment and picture of insignificance. So that's one strategy. It proves to be a fatally flawed strategy 
for the younger brother uh, because he just doesn't get it. If the first method of finding significance is by way of self-discovery and self-expression, the second method is the way of personal effort. Maybe you've tried this method. There actually, there's actually two versions of, of this method in the story. The first of them you'll see in verses 17 to 19. The younger son hits rock bottom until one day Jesus said he came to himself. He snaps out of it and comes to his senses. He has a moment of stunning realisation. And look what he tells himself in verse 17. He says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Clearly, and at long last, the son realises how wrong he's been. He plans to confess his sin without qualification or hesitation. He knows that in his culture, because of the way he's treated his father and the resultant shame that he's brought on his family, he has no status or standing. He's lost his significance in his community and in his family. He's no longer worthy to be called the father's son. And he's quite right about that. But has there really been a change of heart? And yet, as all of this dawns on him, he now swings from one bankrupt strategy for establishing his own worth and meaning to an opposite but equally bankrupt strategy. The clue to what's really going on in the younger brother's heart doesn't come out clearly in our English, lang in our English translation. But in the Greek, the word for hired servant, the hired servants, have more than enough bread, he, he says to himself, when he, his attempt at self-expression and self-discovery failed, he now tries self-reliant effort instead. He wants to serve as one of the hired servants, working in his father's fields. He thinks he can work his way back. Having lost his status as a son by reckless self-indulgence, he thinks he can now earn his way back by and earn his way back, his status, by personal effort. Now, of course, this is the older brother's strategy from the start. When his brother comes home and everyone else is celebrating, when he discovers what's happening, he's deeply offended. He won't join the party, so he stays outside in the cold, sulking in the shadows. And when his father finally comes out to find out what's going on, look at what the... The big brother says, in verse 29, he says, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You can sense the disrespect and the frustration in those words, as he says in verse 30, 30 When this son of yours came, this son of yours, you seem to be rewarding him after his wild living. I've been slaving for you. And that's actually the word he uses. I've been slaving away all these years for you and you have never acknowledged me as much. My status has been ignored, he says, less than a hired hand. He feels like a slave. I've never disobeyed you. I'm the good son. You seem to reward him, not me. 
He gets the party. What do I get? Now, you see how the younger brother and the older brother actually share so many assumptions in common at this point. They're both up operating under the principle of quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. Or in our slang, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch, I'll scratch yours. Some of us may have tried to establish significance like the younger brother by self-discovery and self-expression. Others have, have found out the hard way just how bankrupt that approach can be. Therefore, we try the opposite approach. We think that by our good works, by our moral effort, by a little dusting of religion here and there, judiciously sprinkled around our lives, we can earn and achieve our status before God. But then there are still others of us, at least in our own eyes, we're good law-abiding church people who have never rebelled. But just like both brothers, no matter which category you find yourself falling into, there's always the danger of thinking that your status, your significance with God, rests on your obedience. We think our significance is still the fruit of something that we do. But whatever your strategy, the big idea of Jesus' parable is that none of them work in the end. None of them work. And it's at this point we need to think about the third character of our story. We need to think about the father. In verse 20, the younger son is returning home. He has re he's rehearsed his speech. The younger son has rehearsed his speech and is going to confess his sin. He's going to be the hired servant. Maybe one day he can hope to be called son again. That's the plan. But look at what actually happens. While he's still a far way off, a long way off, his father saw him. And he ran and he embraced and he kissed him. And as the son tries to compose himself and he pulls out his written speech in trembling hands and he manages to get out those first few lines... And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and, and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off. He cuts him off before he can get to the point about being a hired servant. The father just starts talking over him at this point, telling his servants to dress him in finery and let's throw a party. Now, Jesus loves to tell stories that upset the established view and to surprise us and to surprise the people that he's, he told the stories to in, in his day. Everybody who's listening is expecting the father to give the wayward son the cold shoulder and a harsh word. Maybe a good lecture about getting his just desserts and learning his lesson would be in order at this point. No one expects a patriarch in ancient Jewish culture to do what this father does. When he sees his lost son away in the distance, he lifts up his robes and he starts running. How undignified that would have been. That's not how a distinguished Jewish father ever, ever behaved. Fathers, mature men, didn't run. He doesn't care. This father doesn't care. He throws all decorum out the, out the window and runs to meet his prodigal son. And while the son is fumbling for his speech, 
His dad is kissing and hugging him and giving instructions to his servants about how he's to be treated. The best robe, and that would have been the father's robe, to cover his filthy rags, still stinking like pigs. Shoes to bare his feet. He's been walking for miles from a far country. A ring for his grubby hands. What does this mean? What's happened to the younger son? He's been reinstated. And a great celebration follows. He says in verse 24, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and and is found. And they began to celebrate. The son was expecting to work for every morsel of recognition and significance and restored status. Instead, he receives all for free as a gift. It's astonishing, isn't it? It's so amazing that many of Jesus' first hearers would have identified quite readily and clearly with the perplexity and frustration of the older brother, as as revealed later in the story. When he learns about the party going on for his younger brother, God doesn't treat sinners that way. Jesus, don't you understand that? No one believes that, not sinners, not the religious elite of that day for that matter. No one believes that that this is how God behaves. No, your significance has to be earned. That's exactly how the older brother felt about it, to be sure. He was outraged. But notice how the father treats him as well, just as with the returning prodigal. It's the father, not the son, who takes the initiative. In verse 26, while he's busy sulking outside, while the party's going on in the house, his father comes out to him. God responds to good sons and bad sons in the same way. Neither of us, whether you're a good son or a bad son, whether you're a good daughter or a bad daughter, come to him. We're trying to make it on our own and figure out our own strategy to find our own significance. Neither of us comes to him, but he comes to us. He comes to us. And what does the father say to the older son in verse 31? Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your younger brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And the father is teaching the older brother the same lesson as the younger brother has learned. The older brother has access to all that the father has, not because he's earned it, but because the father is gracious. You see, both sons are alienated from the father in our story, aren't they? One does wrong, the other good. But both of them dishonour the father. Both are, are actually at a distance from him. And the father comes after both. And he comes after both with the same message. Your status, your significance, your meaning has nothing to do with how good you've been. Perhaps it's hard for us to get our heads around this. Us being good religious people. Our status has nothing to do with how good you've been. But everything to do with being rightly related to the father. Rightly related to the Father. The Father says, I take all the initiative to put it right. I come after you. I pursue you. The bad son and the good son, 
the Father pursues them both. God comes after the religious and the irreligious with the same message of grace and hope. You can find your significance, but not in anything you've done or could ever do. Not in yourself at all, but only in the embrace of the Father alone. And Jesus' central message in this parable becomes really very clear. If the Father in this story represents the God of Israel pursuing and coming after sinners with extravagant grace in light of the storyline of the Gospel, we need to understand how he does it. How does he do it? How is it that the Father, Father God, the God of Israel, pursues sinners? Well, he does it in the person of Jesus Christ. Our status and our significance as beloved children of God are free to us. But it comes at God's expense. It comes at God's expense. You can see this even in the parable. It's the Father's robe. It's the Father's rings. It's the Father's shoes. His fattened calf, carefully prepared for some day of great celebration. It's all at his expense that this son is reinstated and his status given. And the point is that we don't pay. God pays to give us our status as his beloved children. And how is it that God pays? He pays personally through his beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross to pay the price of our sins through his death. And through this, it's his robes that cover our filthy rags and the stench of our sin and the waywardness, and our waywardness is blotted out. He does this by coming to us, himself coming to us through Jesus, who bears the brunt of the full cost in his spilt blood at the cross. You don't need to become a hired servant or an obedient slave in the Father's field in order to earn some more morsel of personal significance or standing before God. God pays. He bears the cost. He bears the cost when Jesus gave his life freely on the cross. It's free to you in Jesus. Now in closing, we need to know what happens to the younger... Now in closing, well, we do know what happens to the younger brother. But we're left hanging in regards to the older brother. What happens to the older brother? Does he take the father's instructions and join the party? Or does he stay out in the cold? Jesus ends the story probably this way, because most of his hearers were elder brother types. The religious, the obedient, the hard-working, religious performance types. And this same question, are you going to stay out in the cold and in the dark, or will you come in and join the celebration? Are you staying out in the cold and in the dark or will you hear the invitation of God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come back into his embrace of the family, to receive your significance, your status, your identity, your meaning, your worth, not in anything you've done, but in him alone as a free gift as you trust in Christ. Don't stay out in the dark or in the shadows or in the cold, but come to Christ. 
come to Christ today and every day and join in the celebration. Once you were lost, but now you are found. Amen.